Welcome to The Top, the podcast that provides you with what you need to succeed in the real estate world. Brought to you by the Collin County Association of Realtors. Here comes the man who has toured Joint Chiefs of Staff, launched nuclear missiles, and reported to Ross Perot, CCAR's 2020 president, David Long, and communications extraordinaire, Jonna Fernandez, CCAR Chief Operating Officer. Hey, David. Hey, Jonna. Welcome to the top. I'm happy to be here. Me too. I hear we're going to have a familiar face calling into the show today. Yes, we will. Kelly Milligan, Vice President, Dallas Area Council at Chicago Title, is joining us today. He's agreed to share how real estate agents can avoid accidentally practicing law. This is going to be interesting. Hi, Kelly. Good morning. Hey, Kelly. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us uh, today. Oh, you bet. Uh, I was just thinking as I was looking at the email and we were talking about this, uh, you know, I've done television and radio. I've given a couple of speeches. This is my first podcast ever. Oh, nice. We're honored. Well, here you go. It was our first well, as well. There you go. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I guess as I, I think about it, it's fitting that my uh, my first foray into this new medium would be with the association. So I'm, uh, I'm pleased to have the chance to join you. This This might be fun. <laughs> well, thanks for being with us. So, Kelly, what was your response when we asked you to speak about this topic today? Well, I thought it was a good topic. Upon further reflection, one thing that occurs to you, there are a lot of people who don't need this because, you know, we have a large number of ethical, conscientious, well-trained agents in Collin County. They know where the line is, and they're obviously not going to get on the wrong side of it. And then you have a lot of folks out there. I wouldn't say a lot, but there's always a component of the population that takes rules as advisory only. And I've certainly run into those in my years in this industry. And it doesn't matter how long you talk to them about this topic, they're going to do what they do. But I think we've got a lot of folks in the middle who want to do the right thing and could maybe just use a refresher or a little clarification about when they're getting too close to the line. And if I can provide that kind of assistance, then yeah, please do it. Great. So do you think that practicing law is a fine line that agents flirt with, so to speak? Well, that's kind of a compound question. It's definitely a fine line. And there are some agents that flirt with it. There are some agents, as I alluded to a moment or so ago, who don't care about the line. They're just going to do what they do. And I'll give you an example. When I first joined Chicago, and that's been a long time ago now, we're talking 15 years. One of the first things that I got to deal with was a dispute over a contract. And the listing agent on this contract had done the most unbelievable ham-fisted attempt at surgery on the contract you've ever seen. (laughs) This guy had put together his own addendum created with his own laptop or whatever that basically gutted every out that the buyer would have. It said that the buyer had no option, had the right to terminate based on financing or lack of availability, uh, even basically voided the right to terminate based on the HOA addendum. And, you know, the buyer who was not represented signed this thing. And where the contract fell out, naturally the fallout hit. And I I looked at this and first off, I couldn't believe anybody would be this absolutely stupid. And you knew what the reaction would have been if Trek standards and enforcements had seen this. So those people are out there. And for them, it's not a fine line. They're just going to do what they do. But I think for most agents working deals every day, the fine line comes not so much with uh, wholesale creation of documents, but maybe things that are put in special provisions that are just a little too close to actual lawyering. And then it's the advice that we may give people verbally, the things we say, the conclusions that we reach. 
And there are instances where we maybe need to back away a little bit from some of the things that we're telling our clients. And so it's not even so much flirting at the fine line. It's maybe just not knowing where the line is. So that would be my thought on that question. Yeah, I know where you're coming from, Kelly. But can you expand on that and give our listeners some tips on how to avoid accidentally practicing law? Okay. The first one and the most obvious one is if you are an agent, a licensee, you do not even attempt to draw a document that would convey real property or an interest in real property or essentially create a contract. You have a promulgated form. You know that. So you use that if you're working a deal. You never draw a deed. You don't draw a contract for deed. You don't draw any kind of legal document. Leave that to the lawyers. That's, that's step number one. Step number two be very careful how you use special provisions. Paragraph 11 of the Trek contract is really not intended to be a catch-all way to rewrite things we don't like. It's not meant by Trek to be a vehicle for making changes to forms or agenda that maybe we don't think work for our transaction. It's really only intended to give the parties a chance to integrate details, factual details, that are central to the contract in some form or fashion. Uh, if you don't have an addendum that governs a subject and you need to address it, then you might put something in paragraph 11. I'll give you an example. Let's say the seller owns the mineral rights to the property and is willing to convey them to the buyer. You know, If the seller's keeping the minerals, we use the Trek reservation addendum that all of you are familiar with. But we don't really have a form in the event that the seller is going to pass the minerals on to the buyer, and you don't necessarily need one. It's just assumed if it's not reserved, but you could put language in paragraph 11 to the effect that seller agrees to convey mineral rights to the buyer and will sign any documents required by the title company. That's not defining the rights of the parties. It's just a statement of fact that both parties agree with, and it doesn't really fit anywhere else in the contract, so you can write it in. If the parties agree that uh, maybe they're going to use a certain vendor for a particular purpose, that's another example of a factual statement you can write in there. So things like that are pretty safe within the context of paragraph 11. But what you don't do with special provisions is insert moving parts or contingencies. If it's going to be a situation where an outcome depends on a particular event happening or not happening, then that doesn't go in special provisions. And you as a licensee don't need to be drafting that language. That would be where you get an attorney or somebody else involved. Um, If I can drill down with a more specific example that I think everybody can relate to, We all know by now that Trek has given us the addendum that addresses the rights of the buyer to terminate based on the appraisal, right? Right. And before that addendum came along, this was an issue that we dealt with on, oh, perhaps as many as half the transactions we closed. And both parties were looking for a way to kind of limit the buyer's right to terminate based on the appraisal. There was no promulgated form. And so everybody who tried to take a crack at this language did it differently. And when Trek saw the, the results, they were like, oh, we got a problem here. We're, we're going to need to put this addendum together. A broker lawyer spent better than a year working on it. That's an example. If it's a moving part like that that defines the rights of one party or another based on a contingency, you don't go there. You get somebody else to do that for you. Um, and we can talk more about use of special provisions a little later if you like. But the third component is that you need to be very careful about the advice that you give your client verbally or the conclusions that you may draw. Because sometimes what seems fairly clear to you 
may not be clear at all. And in fact, it may be absolutely contrary to the law. And I'll give you an example that's top of mind because uh, I'm dealing with these people again this year. Probably five years ago, I had a woman come to me. She was selling her home. She had power of attorney from both her mother and father who were elderly and in a memory care facility. And she was under contract. And uh, she called me with a question. And along the way, we found out that her father, one of her two parents who had given her power of attorney, had passed away. And I had to explain to her that because her father was no longer living, the power of attorney was no longer valid and that she would probably need to consider probating the will. And what stood out in my memory, and as I said, this was several years ago, this was a prim, circumspect, very proper woman, probably in her late 50s, early 60s. And when she found out that she couldn't use the power of attorney, she unleashed a tirade that would have made a stevedore blush. I'd never heard some of these words. She was just furious. Wow. And, and the reason, she, yeah, and, and I can cuss pretty well myself, Johnny. You know that. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to say the, anything, about, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I said it for you. But w- what made this woman so angry is she had been told by her agent, a licensed Texas realtor, that the power of attorney was all she needed, even though her father was deceased. And, you know, anybody who has been six minutes in the title industry in a legal capacity knows that's not the case. A power of attorney expires when the person who signs it expires. But the agent told her client something that was just patently wrong, and it created an issue. We were able to resolve it, but we had one very hacked off person. And that was an example. There are so many examples of where we maybe get close to the line. One that Trek uses in the legal update handouts this time around is talking to a surviving spouse and and telling that surviving spouse that her husband's death, for example, means that she has full ownership of the property. It may seem like an innocent, innocuous statement. If we understand how community property works, we understand that, yes, the wife definitely has an interest in the property, but that doesn't speak to what might need to be done to account for the husband's interest. And there are a whole myriad range of options and and possibilities there. So uh, that statement made by a licensee probably intended just to reassure a client who doesn't know how to handle what's all brand new to her is inaccurate. It's a legal conclusion. It can wind up causing some, some real problems. So, you know, I think it's one thing to offer an opinion based on your experience as an agent. If you've been doing this for a long time, you've likely run into uh, the same situation you're facing right now. You've run into it before. And you can tell your client, well, when I saw this before, this is what ended up happening. But taking it a step further and saying, in this situation, this is the answer, can sometimes put you on the wrong side if it's more you giving legal advice or reaching a conclusion of law as opposed to drawing on your own experience or observations over the years. I know that I've had... Clients ask me to tweak a contract, you know, promulgate a contract, strike this out or add this little bit here. And I have to tell them, uh, no, you can't do that. I've served on um, Texas Realtors Professional Standards for the last three years. And you get to see some things where agents just made a simple mistake, maybe. Or you see some things where agents really cross the line. Oh, yeah, you you definitely do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to your, to your comment, there are circumstances where a licensee can make changes to a TREC promulgated form, but they can't take it upon themselves to do so just because they don't like the language in the form. Right. If your client gives you written instructions that they want to strike certain language, 
then you keep that written instruction so you've covered your tail, it may be something you can do. Um, I'll give you an example. If you look at paragraph 15, and we'll just talk about the one to four for example and illustration's sake. Paragraph 15 talks about the remedies uh, of a non-defaulting party. And those typically include two things. One, uh, terminating and seeking the earnest money, or two, filing suit for special or specific performance, rather. And it is not uncommon to see the parties agree to strike that specific performance remedy. It's strikeable in commercial contracts. A broker lawyer almost took it out of the one to four seven or eight years ago and then decided at the last minute not to. But we do see deals where the parties want to take that remedy away just to aid for you know, an easy resolution in the event the contract terminates. Uh, nobody wants that hanging over their head. And so I have seen contracts where the parties have agreed to strike it, and it was done by giving written instruction to the agent. And in that situation, uh, I don't think Trek's going to have too much heartburn. But when you have the situation where the agent is just wholesale slashing things out of the contract, not because their client told them to, but because they think it's more expedient for their client, uh, and that may be some of what you saw sitting on different committees. Uh, you, you don't go there. You may not like the uh, the knockout provision in the addendum for sale of other property by buyer, but you don't get to strike it out. That knockout provision is what protects the seller. And if you take it out, there's little incentive for the seller to agree to it. That points out something else that I might like to share. I see a lot of situations where one party will propose something language and special provisions, or some sort of change to an addendum, like I talked about striking the knockout clause. And when the other agent says, no, I'm not comfortable with this, the first agent proposing a change will say something like, well, it's okay, I talked to my broker about it. Whether that's true or not, that does not mean that you have to agree to something you're not comfortable with. And I always caution agents, don't be railroaded into making a decision that could hurt your client because the other side's telling you, come on, it's okay, it's not a problem. And that's why lawyers are here. And that's why we get involved in giving legal advice. And you telling your client something like this is probably not going to be a problem. Uh, that's another example of an area where you're effectively giving legal advice to your client that can come back to bite you. That's a good point, Kelly. Um, so can real estate agents facilitate a lease-to-own agreement? I think the better question is, should real estate agents ever try to? Should they? Should they want to? Uh, and the answer to that, I think, is no, uh, given the conditions of the market. Can they? Let's talk about that question first. The answer is pretty simple. If an agent wants to get involved in a lease purchase, lease to own, contract for deed, call it whatever you want, you can make it happen because you're always going to be able to find some lawyer out there that will draw those documents for you. But uh, most lawyers won't because we see the problems and we don't want any part of it. And back to what I was saying uh, to initially address the question, it's just not a good idea. The reason that you do a lease purchase or a contract for deed is because the buyer is not able to obtain financing through traditional means. They can't get a mortgage. They can't pay cash. They can't find anybody that will bank them. So they want the seller to effectively carry the note. That is not a risk most sellers need to take in the current market, where we are dealing with less than one month's supply throughout much of Collin County, and we have people moving here in droves every day. If the buyer you're talking to can't get a mortgage to buy your property, uh, that's unfortunate for them, but that does not mean that you as the seller need to assume the risk of banking them. If you wait, you're going to find a buyer who is bankable, and you aren't going to have to mess with this. Does that make sense? 
Yes. Absolutely. Okay. The second layer of is, is this. If you are the seller and you own a piece of property and it is encumbered by a mortgage, for you to do a contract for deed, lease purchase, lease to own, call it whatever you want, you run the risk of getting in a lot of trouble with your lender because they're going to see a conveyance of their collateral. They may call your note due, and then you end up getting foreclosed on, and the people who are trying to purchase your property aren't going to be in a good position either. So there are a lot of legal hurdles to doing this. The other problem with doing an arrangement like this and I should clarify, you, you refer to it as, as lease to, to own, rent to own, contract, whatever you call it, the property code treats them all the same way. If the closing or the actual transfer of possession occurs more than 180 days after the effective date of the contract, we call it an executory contract, whatever the parties decide to call it. And they're all treated the same way. And there are a lot of obligations incumbent upon the seller, giving accountings every month for how much of the payment went to equity, how much went to taxes and insurance. You've got to transfer the deed effectively as soon as the, the buyer demands. I mean, there's so many things that the seller has to do, and they're not going to know this because the agent's not going to know this. And in effect, the seller's going to wind up in a real bath of hot water. The civil penalties, if you do one of these deals wrong, sometimes exceed the amount of the property value. So... There's just no good reason to do this. It is fraught with peril for the seller. And because there will be so many better options, it's just not something I would ever recommend. The cleaner course, if you've got a seller who is dealing with a buyer that is challenged for credit, if the seller owns the property free and clear, no mortgage on it, just do straight up seller financing. Do a one to four, attach a seller financing addendum, and you can protect the seller in different ways. You could maybe do a five-year balloon. You know, we'll, we'll amortize this over 30 years. You make payments for five. That gives you time to get your credit straight, and you can refinance and get us out of here. But I would never, ever recommend under any circumstances the contract for deed, the lease purchase, or anything else. So regardless of whether an agent can make such a thing happen, I don't think it's a good idea ever. And, you know, when I say that, and I say this giving a, a class or a speech, there will always be some agents that will raise their hand and say, well, I know so-and-so did this eight or nine years ago and they didn't have any problems. And my answer is usually to allude to a kid that I knew in third grade named Troy Grassfire who once drank Drano. It didn't kill him, but I'm not going to go drink Drano. So all that by way of saying, yeah. Now, but agents need to be on their guard with this because we have a lot of people moving here from other states where the contract for deed in some form or another is a viable mechanism. You know, California, I guess they do it. And so the Californian moves here and doesn't have credit and they want the, the Texas seller to do a contract or deed. And most of our agents understand that. But we've got so many new agents that have gotten into the business that don't even know to question it. And that's how people wind up getting in hot water. Uh, but I'm just going to say as a blanket statement, do not do anything that looks or smells like a contract or deed. You don't have to. They're dangerous. Bad idea. No, 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 no. I've had clients from California that were surprised that we did not do uh, a lease to own or least you know lease purchase thing. I would think in today's market, particularly for the buyer side, with it being such an intense market as you alluded to, that buyers agents can be under a lot of stress. And how would you recommend if a client asks an agent to do something that they don't have the training for, or don't understand, how should they respond? Part of the problem, David, is that some agents don't know what they don't know. 
Um, and I'm thinking of a particular agent who wound up in a, in a, a, a very difficult situation. And I, I assisted her with this a couple of years ago. Fairly new, doing anything she could to get traction. And she had the California buyer. And the California buyer wanted to do an escalation clause. They were in a multiple offer situation and they wanted to put language in there that said they would increase the amount of their offer to $1,000 more than the next highest offer that the seller received. We're all familiar with the escalation clause, right? Oh, yeah. And we're all familiar with the fact that we should not be doing them, right? Right. Right. Well, this, this young lady was not. And because her buyer was aggressive and a little pushy, he insisted that that language be put in the contract. When the offer was made to the seller, the listing agent kicked it back and said, we're happy to consider the offer, but we will not consider the escalation clause. They are problematic for a lot of reasons. Strike it and resubmit and we can talk, but we're not even going to entertain that. This then further angered the buyer who felt like the agent wasn't doing things right when in fact the, (laughs) the listing agent was trying to set everybody straight. The buyer's agent then tried to walk the representation agreement and bought with somebody. It turned into just World War III, and this poor young agent didn't even realize what she'd stepped into. The first thing I would say is the agent needs to understand where the lines are drawn. If you know something is wrong, that better prepares you to tell a client that you're not in a position to do it. So you need to know, for example, that the escalation clause is a non-starter. You need to know that a contract for deed, for example, is something that you can't do. When the client tells you that they want something like that, you just have to explain to them, this is not allowed by the Texas Real Estate Commission. Uh, in some cases, it's because it would involve writing language that should be better written by an attorney. In some cases, it's because you're talking about doing something that's just unenforceable. But the agent just needs to explain to them, it's not that I'm refusing to do it, although you hope they would. It's that it cannot be done as a practical matter, as a legal matter in the state of Texas. So you just have to be firm and explain to them. If they blow back, maybe offer up your broker to explain why what they're seeking is problematic. And if worse comes to worse, uh, there are a number of agents that work with our offices that know if if they need me to have a conversation with their client and it's like this, I will do it. And when it comes from the lawyer telling them, no, this is something that your agent is not able to do and really you're not able to do it either, a lot of times that calms them down. But you have to be firm. When we speak of being firm, particularly for less experienced agents, that's important anyway. You need to be able to project control, the ability to handle all aspects of the situation. And if your client is able to browbeat you on something, they're going to browbeat you on a whole lot more because they think they've got the upper hand. So you just need to be firm, explain to them as best you can why it won't work, and then offer up another resource if they need further explanation. Great answer. So Kelly, we just have a couple more minutes. In closing, um, can you let us know what some possible consequences are of a real estate professional who practices law? First and foremost, if it's real, really egregious, you run the risk of losing your license at a minimum, some sort of disciplinary action from the Real Estate Commission, and possibly difficulty with the State Bar of Texas. If you, for example, were to attempt to create a contract or a deed of conveyance, and you write that and put it together for the clients and get them to sign it, um, you're going to get posterized by both Trek and the State Bar. Because here you are drawing a document that conveys an interest in real property, and that is one of the specific things that is called out by the commission as unauthorized practice of law. 
So if you go that far, you do something like that, uh, you may wind up back in retail before too much longer. So the consequences can be pretty extreme. In other cases, it's maybe a little less severe. There could be a reprimand. There could be some sort of disciplinary action by Trek. If, for example, you give a client bad advice verbally or write something in special provisions that maybe you shouldn't. But in those situations, I think the greater consequence, certainly one of which we should be mindful given our fiduciary duty, is that you may hurt your client. When you write something in special provisions attempting to achieve a certain outcome or result, but you don't do it well, you, you write the language in a vaguer, ambiguous manner, that may not work for your client. In fact, it may work against them. When a court is considering a contract and a dispute between the parties over what it means, one of the first rules the court will apply when interpreting the language is that the, if there's any ambiguity, they're going to construe it against the party that created it. Does that make sense as I say it? Yes. Okay. And just to, to further illustrate, I'm attempting to do something for my client, so I write language in paragraph 11 special provisions. The contract falls out, and later we're having a dispute over what that provision meant because the dispute hinges on that provision. The court's going to hear my side. Your Honor, this is what I, I meant when I drafted this language, and this is the outcome that we think is appropriate. Then they're going to listen to the other side saying, well, Your Honor, we signed it because we thought it meant this. And if we'd known it meant what they're urging, we would never have agreed to it. So the court's going to hear these conflicting views, and they're going to side against the party that wrote the language. The reasoning being, hey, if you wanted this result, that's fine. You were the one that wrote the language into the contract, and if you didn't get it right, that's your problem. Here's your box of rice Thanks for playing. So <laughs> when you try to get cute in special provisions and you end up putting language in that winds up causing an issue, it's not going to go well for your client. So you hurt your client, and your fiduciary duty has arguably not been met. And then other consequences... You know, when you give somebody off-the-cuff legal advice or tell them they can do something they can't do, they get into a dispute. They may file the track complaint, but they're certainly not going to speak well of you. I guess the bottom line is to try to put a bow on all of this. Most agents that have been doing this longer than 30 minutes generally know what they're doing. I think agents in Collin County are pretty well trained. I would give them the benefit of the doubt. But there are always those gray area situations, and where you run into them, it's just as easy to get guidance or advice from somebody else, your broker, uh, another more senior veteran agent, perhaps even attorney if you need it, before you go off half-cocked and give bad advice to your client. And if we just take the time and take advantage of the resources available to us, I think it's pretty easy to stay out of trouble. You just have to kind of think of it in those terms. You're, you're, you're kind of playing defense in these situations. Well, very good. Yeah, well, you know, thanks for joining us today, uh, Kelly. And it's always fun talking to you. I always learn something when I hear you talking about this. Well, David, as long as we've been doing this, I, I wouldn't think there's much more I can teach you. Oh, <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Yes, you know, I've slept a few times since uh, last time I heard you, so I've forgotten half of it. Any, But anyways, this is your first podcast, as we learned. Yes. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back. I'm looking forward to the second one, man. Yeah, we'll have you back in the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Kelly. For those listening, thanks for hanging out with us again. And don't forget to subscribe to Welcome to the Top wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to let us know how we're doing. If you have a question or topic you would like us to discuss, we want to hear it. So be sure to email us at ask at welcometothetop.com. Then listen to hear us cover it. 
We can't wait to hear from you. Thanks for listening. And until next time, don't forget to call before showing. Special thanks to our hosts, Jonna Fernandez and David Long. Our audio engineer, Garrett Holton. Outreach and Guest Relations Manager, Kendall Crawford. Podcast Administrator, Sean Offsall. And Producer, Bree Westbury. Tune in next time and don't forget to enjoy your journey to the top. The statements by speakers in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views or position of the Collin County Association of Realtors, its leadership, or its members. This podcast is not intended to give legal, financial, medical, or other advice, but simply to provide information as a springboard to further discussion and investigation.